0: Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church this morning. My name is John. I'm grateful that you are here, and uh, good morning uh, as well to those who are joining us by uh, live stream. Uh, you uh, are missed, and you are uh, remembered. Good morning to you as well. And good morning, little theologians. I'm about to preach to you. I'm glad that you are here as well. I want you, as you listen to this sermon, to draw for me a picture of a recipe. I don't know if you like to cook. I don't like to cook, but maybe you do. You can either write a recipe or you can draw a picture of a recipe, but the recipe is for glue. Everyone likes to eat glue, right? Just a So that's that's what I'd like for you to do for me, little theologians. Draw for me a, a picture of a recipe for uh, glue. There's some uh, stickiness in this passage. God, when He uh, converts us, when He draws us to Himself, He actually sticks us to one another. Uh, There's a a couple of passages in Scripture uh, about the stickiness of glue. And so, you'll see a word here uh, that is a word uh, that's translated as joined, joined together. But there are other places in the Bible uh, where glue can be found. Isn't that funny? So, good morning and welcome to you, little theologians. So, our passage this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. What we've been doing these uh, past uh, few Sundays is we've been looking at passages that highlight the four values of our church. And we began with our value of worship, and then our value of outreach, our value of discipleship, and this morning, our value of a covenant life. This is a value uh, that makes claims about how we live together as a church that belongs to God our Father. So this is Ephesians uh, chapter 2 verses 19 through 22. Uh, Let me first uh, lead us in prayer and then we'll read this passage. Our Holy Father, would you put to use the lips of your steward that I would be your steward and your steward alone? Would you help me, Heavenly Father, to make your word known before your people? Would you aid me by your Holy Spirit? But even as you aid my lips, would you aid the ears that take in uh, this uh, message of yours? Uh, Father, would that same uh, Spirit uh, take your word through ears and apply to hearts, to speech, to thoughts, to actions? Would you do all of this for your namesake? Amen. So Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want you to uh, understand a couple of things about how the gospel works. And we know this, but uh, it's good for us to hear this repeatedly. Uh, We know that God has the power to make relationships. And what we ordinarily think of when we think about God's power to make relationships is we think about our relationship with God. We as Christians understand that we're saved by grace, that God is the one who has initiated a relationship and he's done all things necessary That we might have a relationship with Him. He, after all, is in the business of making relationships. It's great and glorious, isn't it? We understand ourselves to be sinners. Uh, None of our works can earn God's favor, but He makes it happen. He builds a relationship. Against all odds, He takes a sinner like me and a sinner like you and He fashions a relationship, drawing us to Himself. That's not only familiar, not only true, but it's also a reality that we tend to allow to overshadow another reality, and that is this, that the gospel not only draws us individually to God, but the gospel also draws us to one another. Fellow Christians, people who each belong to God individually, they also belong to each other corporately. God's in the business of making relationships, but he's not in the business of making just a relationship between you and God, but a relationship between you and fellow Christians. And his power to do this is through the covenant of grace. Is that a word that is unfamiliar to you apart from the word on your bulletin or the word on the sign along East Brainerd? We believe that God brings us into relationship with himself and into relationship with others through the covenant of grace. God not only created Adam and Eve, God entered into a relationship with Adam and Eve, and this we call the covenant of works. God gave to Adam all of the trees minus one. You may eat the fruit of all of them but not of this one. So God enters into a relationship with Adam, but that relationship it has structure. There are rules to that relationship. Adam, after all, is a creature and not the creator. And we know that Adam did not uh, keep the covenant obligations of that relationship. Adam actually broke the covenant of works that God made with him. But God, he actually makes another covenant. And that covenant is the name covenant that is on the sign of our church. That is the covenant of grace. You see, Adam and Eve are sinners. Adam and Eve broke the covenant of works and they deserve the punishment for breaking that covenant which God told Adam in advance, that Adam would die. And not just Adam and Eve, but Adam as a representative of all humankind represents us so that everyone today is born under the dark shadow of that covenant of works, a covenant that has been broken and a covenant which will surely result in curse, punishment. But God makes a covenant of grace. It's hinted at in Genesis chapter 3 when God says that to Adam and Eve that an offspring of Eve will stand upon the head of an offspring of the serpent. And that's a hint of the covenant of grace, but the covenant of grace is stated again to Noah, in which God promises he's not going to judge the world in that same manner. Uh, That covenant of grace is made to Moses. That covenant of grace is made to Abraham and to his son and to his grandson, Isaac and Jacob. That covenant of grace is made to uh, King David. That covenant of grace is made to Jeremiah, hinting at the covenant of grace coming in Christ Jesus himself. The one who, when he dies upon the cross, he deals with that punishment of the breaking of the covenant of works, and because of his perfect righteousness, we as sinners, well, we have a relationship with God. That's the covenant. Of grace. And it's hinted at in the passage uh, just before our own in verse 12. You see reference there of uh, covenants of promise. And I want us to understand that this entire passage, 19 through 22, actually depends upon God's covenant of grace. Every word in our passage as we begin, I want uh, every word, uh, every you word, Y-O-U, that word is a word addressed to a plurality. This passage is addressed to many people. Of course, it's addressed to the congregation at Ephesus. But there may be multiple congregations in the uh, region of Ephesus, and it's certainly addressed to us as but one congregation that belongs to God. I want you to understand that this passage uh, suits uh, the picture of what God does in the covenant because what this passage says is this. God's covenant of grace makes a people... You hear that? God's covenant of grace makes a people. But God's covenant of grace also defines that people, makes a people and defines a people. I want us to hear, first of all, in verse 19, that God is at work. He is assembling to himself a household. That's where I want to begin. God assembles a household. But God not only assembles a household, He actually builds a foundation. He builds a foundation. And then finally, God occupies a temple. All three of these things happen because of the covenant of grace. But let's begin with verse 19, God assembling a household. I hope you understand that every uh, church has relationship issues That may not be the best place to begin a sermon, but the church at Ephesus was like all churches. There were relationship issues in that church, and for Ephesus, there were a few that were particularly poignant. One is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Paul talks a lot about this in Ephesians. There's an ethnic division in the church at Ephesus. The Jews and the Gentiles have to learn how to live together in the church, But there is also a socioeconomic uh, division in the church at Ephesus. There were uh, wealthy people, profoundly wealthy people. Uh, Ephesus was an an industrious uh, city. But there were also a lot of slaves in Ephesus. They were very poor people. And so the problems in Ephesus between relationships in the church were not just ethnic, they were also socioeconomic, but there was another uh, difficult division in the church at Ephesus. Some people were socially acceptable, and some people had socially negative problems. This isn't an ethnic division or socioeconomic division, it's a cultural division. And we read about this in Acts chapter 19. Many people who became believers and uh, became a part of this church at Ephesus, they continue to struggle with old habits, old pagan habits, including the practice of witchcraft and magic and sorcery and divination. These individuals were uh, cultural outcasts. They were the kind of people who were practicing outside of the city's acceptable religion. And that's the worship of Diana or Artemis, which we'll talk about later. But in the church at Ephesus, there were ethnic divisions, social economic divisions, and cultural divisions because there were some people that were socially accepted and some people who were still dealing with addictions and problems that hadn't quite left them in this Christian walk yet. And if you think about those three divisions, it shouldn't be very hard to imagine those same divisions in the, in the church today. Perhaps even this church. Ethnic divisions, socio economic divisions, cultural divisions. But you see in verse 19, don't you, that there's some kind of transformation that has happened. Uh, Paul says, so then you are no longer one thing, but you are now something else. He says that you were at one time uh, different, and now you are the way you are today by the gospel. At one time, it made sense for them to consider themselves strangers and aliens to one another. Strangers and aliens. These words in Greek basically mean the same thing. But just think about this. Every social organization, even if it's a a good, wonderful social organization, well, it still is a foreigner to every other social organization. I want you to think about something for a moment. We establish for ourselves communities all the time. We're part of a multitude of different communities, each of us. But imagine if we formed together in, in an ethnic community of some sort, or a socioeconomic uh, community in some, of some sort, or a cultural community, a, a community that has similar uh, taste with regards to uh, culture. The very presence of that community, well... It more than implies that there's a community outside of that community. To be a part of a community is to not be a part of other communities. To be a part of a community is to always be in contrast with some other community. To be a part of a clique is to be separated from some other clique. To be a part of a political party is to not be a part of another political party. A friend group of yours is different than a friend group of someone else. Your own homeowners association is different from a homeowners association in the neighborhood next to you. I'm stating the obvious because what Paul says is really groundbreaking. He says that God is in the business of making his own community. And he calls his community a community in which there is a a fellow citizenry with the saints. Look at that in verse 19. Fellow citizens with the saints. Whatever community you're a part of right now, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you're a part of God's own community and that community is a part of his own citizenship. You know, to, to read that Uh, that these uh, members of uh, the church at Ephesus were members of um, a kind of citizenship. That's very political, but political citizenry was really important in Ephesus. Citizenry gave you full protection, full equality. Citizenship was really important and in a city of 200,000 people, to be a citizen was a big deal. But God says, I'm making making you a citizen of my kingdom, a citizen with fellow saints. And that means that if you're a citizen of my church, you're, you're a citizen with people who are beyond the church of Ephesus. You're citizens with a larger body of people than those who have the same passport. You're a citizen with my saints, and the climax, really, of all of this uh, new household of God is exactly there in verse 19. Uh, to, to, be, to be a part of God's uh, kingdom, to be a citizen with the saints, is to be a member of the household of God. Now, in Ephesus, a household uh, was broader than a family. A household would usually include uh, multiple uh, families together. It was uh, cross-ethnic Cross socioeconomic, cross cultural. That's what a household would be. And P.T. O'Brien, a scholar in, um, on Ephesians, he says that a, a household would, would be a, a household that had a strong master, and that, that meant everything. The household is where the members of the church of, of Ephesus would find their protection and their identity and their sense of belonging. A household was very important. But look what God is doing. God is drawing them into his own household. If your earthly household had a strong master and could guarantee those things uh, like protection and identity and a sense of belonging, wow, what about God himself? You see, the covenant of grace, it draws us into union with Jesus and we talk about that a lot. That's important. But God's covenant of grace, according to verse 19, also draws us into union with each other. Members of God's own household. All of our old social allegiances, our our communities that we think are so important to us, our ethnic, our socioeconomic, our cultural communities, they exist. They're there. But they no longer define us. They no longer set the boundary for who we are as Christians, because as Christians, we belong to God's household. Now, I want to apply this later, but the covenant of grace assembles this new household by reaching into every possible social organization, every ethnic group, every socioeconomic group, every cultural group. The gospel of grace infiltrates all of those groups and it pulls people out of those groups and it makes them into something different, something that is called God's household. That's what God is doing in the covenant of grace. He's drawing us individually, but he's making for himself a household. And look at verse 20. God is not only uh, assembling a household, he is building a foundation. Or It would be better to say he has built a foundation. Now, this is not terribly odd. I mean, think of any social organization. Any social organization can speak about themselves as having a kind of foundation. Every social organization has rules, obligations, expectations. If you're a part of the club, then you're going to act a certain way. You're going to do certain things, hold certain opinions. Every social organization is like this. If you're a part of a gardening club and your friend is a part of a remote remote control airplane club, those two clubs, they have separate rules. Don't bring your airplane to the gardening club, right? And the obligations that you have to meet before Costco, those, that same contract doesn't apply to Sam's Club. Every organization can talk this way about having a kind of a foundation or set of obligations. You know all of those expectations for your ethnic community, your socioeconomic community, and your cultural community. A household would be just like that. It would have these certain expectations. Folks in Ephesus would know that some households would be marked by a very wealthy master. But some households wouldn't have a wealthy master. They would have a poor, uh, socially insignificant master. Those in Ephesus, they understood that some households were really, really large. And some households are really small. Some households would be pretty young, nouveau rich households. But some of those households, they would be historic. They would, they, would, uh, they would claim antiquity. It mattered the foundation and expectations of your household. But it matters to God as well. Look how God describes in verse 20 his own household. His household is on a foundation notice that God is the one who builds this foundation. God the Father has planned the story of redemption. He has a will. He has a purpose. This will and purpose existed even before the foundations of the world, and so He builds this foundation for His household. And He doesn't build His household on a whim, does He? He first makes a foundation for his household. And there's two things that should stand out to us in verse 20 about this foundation. The first is that everything about this foundation of God's household points to Jesus. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. All of the promises of the covenant of grace, the very uh, central thrust of the proclamation of the gospel, All of that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. We are the ones who broke God's covenant of works and live our lives under the curse of punishment. Jesus kept God's covenant of works. He is the only one who is perfectly obedient, met every expectation for God's covenant of works. And Jesus also took upon himself a sentence that he did not deserve. We were the disobedient ones and are the disobedient ones. And he is perfect. And yet he took upon himself God's very sentence, his wrath and his punishment that we deserve. And his death on the cross satisfied all of God's demands, all of God's sentence. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied all of that, which means... We can come before God and repent of our own work and receive instead the perfect work of Jesus. And when we repent and when we believe, we receive eternal life because of what Jesus has done. All of the stones of this foundation upon which God builds his household are stones that point to Jesus. The household of God stands on the very strength of Jesus A household with a strong master meant everything. And there's no stronger master than this. That's the first thing. Everything about the foundation points to Jesus. The second thing about God's foundation for his household is that the apostles and the prophets, they themselves point to Jesus. There's a ministry of explanation, of preaching, of instruction. The word of the gospel goes out through God's emissaries, His apostles and His prophets. Now, the word prophet is not likely a reference to the Old Testament prophets. The prophets here is likely New Testament teachers and preachers and shepherds and evangelists. Uh, Paul's going to mention some of them in Ephesians 4.11. And in fact, in Ephesians 6.12, Paul mentions that this letter was sent by Tychicus. And maybe uh, Tychicus, uh, his instruction, his leadership in the church, uh, he fits in that category of a New Testament prophet. But God has uh, provided apostles and prophets a, a ministry of teaching and instruction. And it may be that apostles and prophets is just a general summary of the gospel message of the church that comes from God's own self-revelation. God provides preachers The preachers would go forth and make the covenant of grace known. One scholar says this phrase, apostles and prophets, is really synonymous with the bedrock of historic Christianity. The gospel message preached and received, it doesn't change. The ministry of the apostles and prophets, they too point to Jesus. And so God assembles his household... And he places this household on the foundation of the Christ-centered gospel taught by the apostles and preachers of the New Testament and taught again as we read and instruct in God's word. Now, all of this would be readily understandable to the Ephesian audience. They would understand that God is in the business of making a corporate relationship. Their world was, I think, a bit more corporate than our world today. They also would have understood that a a good household needs to have a good foundation. But the last thing that Paul says in verses 21 and 22 is that God not only assembles a household, not only builds a foundation, but God occupies a temple. This is a different image. And to you and I, we might think rather uh, encyclopedic about a temple and that a temple is just some place where a divine power occupies space. You go there to commune with whoever your divine power is. But the very mention of the word temple would have been huge to the Ephesian ear. Ephesus was an important temple city. The goddess Artemis was a goddess whose worship centered on Ephesus. She was a goddess of fertility and pilgrims from all over the world came to Ephesus because this was the home of Artemis. It was said that the colonists first founded Ephesus where they believed Artemis was born in nearby woods. Between the Old and the New Testament, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was the largest building in Rome, the largest building in Greece, the largest building in Asia. Four times the size of the Parthenon was the temple of Artemis. 127 columns, The entire temple was more than four stories. Ephesus was a city that was long known as the city of the temple of Artemis. The temple was known as the guardian of all things that pour out of the sky. There was an old meteorite that was kept in the temple. And the temple received so many pilgrims that the temple over time became a banking center... The temple held lots and lots of cash. And then what happened to that temple, not many know, but I'm going to tell you. That temple was built in the 6th century BC, and it was known all the way to 356 BC. But in 356, a madman in the city of Ephesus, a member of the city of Ephesus, burnt her down, burnt her to the ground. The temple uh, was but ruins during the time of Paul. It was never rebuilt. No more building. But Ephesus still maintained all of the fame of the temple of Artemis. Ephesus in Paul's day was known as the temple keeper. That's how Ephesus was known. And Ephesus received so many pilgrims and received so much money because the temple of Artemis, well, it used to be there. Now, it just pales in comparison. And Paul says that God's household on God's foundation, that's his dwelling place. That's his temple. This is where he comes from heaven and makes his home on earth. The imagery of temple would have been both beautiful to the Ephesians but also deeply offensive. Let me first tell you why it would have been offensive. It would be offensive because Ephesus doesn't need another temple. Yes, our temple burnt to the ground. It's a pile of rubble. But we are still the temple keepers. The average citizen of Ephesus would have made this argument over and over again. Yes, there's no building, but we are still the temple keepers. And Artemis still honors this location. If there's any news from the gods that falls out of heaven, it comes to Ephesus. And it would be offensive because they had been making the argument that Ephesus doesn't need another temple. Well, guess what? The covenant of grace is here. And God is making for himself a temple. But the same news that would be offensive at first would hopefully over time become beautiful because God dwells not in a physical structure. Do you see that? It's not a physical structure. There's not a piece of architecture that's going to compete with the architecture that was burnt down. No. God dwells not in a physical structure, but he dwells in the life of his people individually and together And these people, they have the very presence of God. We're told that they have this presence by the Holy Spirit. But by the Holy Spirit, they are a people who have ultimate protection, ultimate identity, and an ultimate sense of belonging because it's secure, it's guaranteed, and it's permanent. God's covenant of grace, it makes a people, no doubt about it. God's covenant of grace made you if you profess faith in Jesus Christ. He made that relationship. But God's covenant of grace also defines that people. And I want to conclude by just showing how uh, these uh, three images in this passage, God assembling a household, building a foundation, and then inhabiting or occupying a temple, how those three images actually inform us as a congregation. The first is this. My brothers and sisters, those who are part of Covenant Presbyterian Church, would you remember that we're not a household that we assembled ourselves? God has assembled us together, that no allegiance that we have is higher than the allegiance that we should have to God. He has assembled us, and we want that to be a part of our life as a church. Uh, we don't want there to be a uh, distance or reserved, uh, reservedness between one another. Uh, we want to be close. We want to have tight relationships. We're assembled, after all, by God himself. At the same time, we don't want to boast about our other uh, communities that we, uh, b- we belong to our political affiliations our, our, our cultural affiliations our tastes and opinions yes we have those and we and we do have communities outside the life of this church but there is no allegiance higher than the allegiance that we have to this community because God has assembled it it's what the covenant of grace does Secondly, he's he's assembled us as a household, and that has meaning, but he's also built us on a foundation. We actually don't get to set the parameters for this community together. God does. Everything that we do as a community, we need to find rationale for that in God's word. The, The words and the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, it ought to color everything that we do, because we're not our own household. God has the right to tell us how to behave and how to function because we're built not on our foundation, we're built on his foundation. And the third, I think, application is this, that together we really are his temple. We first and foremost think about ourselves individually, but we are actually closest to God when we're in the community of the saints. This is why we're not to neglect being together. Our 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 worship is important because we do that corporately. But so too is our sanctification, our discipleship. We grow best together, sinning and repenting, coming closer and closer together, studying God's word. Doing it by fits and starts slowly, uh, the bringing to one another vulnerability as we slowly grow and mature and we cast off those old patterns of our life and as we put on the patterns of grace for our life. We actually do all of that, as awkward as the sounds, really close together. We together are his temple. And I want to say this again with regards to the temple. A temple was always a place people would come to meet God. Can people easily come to this place to meet God? Do they have to do certain things before they can come to this place and see God? Or do we make Jesus known uh, just automatically, instinctively, holding him out? Do we do that as a church body? A temple is a place where people come to meet God. Do we want them to meet God's household? Or do we want them to meet our own little private households? Do we want them to meet the church body together or do we want them to meet just me individually? Others come close to God through the ordinary practices of this household, guided by God's scripture. When people come, do they see us or do they see God? God's covenant of grace makes a people, no doubt about it. But I want us to remember this morning that God's covenant of grace defines that people and not a mark how we live our lives. Well, let's pray that God would more and more uh, show us how to make the covenant of grace known in our life together as a people. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we do believe that you brought us to yourself in the covenant of grace, and we thank you for that. Father, we ask that you would forgive us for thinking about this as a collection of uh, independence, but we're not independent As we belong to Christ, we belong to one another, and we would ask that you would teach us what this means for our life as a church family. Remind us, Father, that we as a household are not our own, and as others come and get to know Covenant Presbyterian Church, would they see that as well? In Jesus' name, amen.